Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In a few moments, I'll begin reading in verse 18. It's going to be a section that carries us over into the first part of chapter 4 as well. And one of the many things uh, touched by sin and affected by sin, of course, is our relationships with one another. And I, I probably don't need to convince you of that. That's perhaps where we feel the stain of sin most often and most, most frequently, most intensely as we perhaps are the victims of gossip or slander or, or conflict comes up with somebody or sharp words or any number of ways that, that sin affects relationships. Well, in those relationships, there also is a tendency to judge and, and evaluate one another. It's a near universal experience of finding ourselves at times judging others in a way that we would not want to be judged, of assuming motives, of lumping people in with others. And so one of the most famous commands of Christ, uh, known and embraced even if misunderstood by those who wouldn't call themselves Christians, would be, right, judge not, lest you be judged. So many people, even if they've never walked within a church, would know those words, even if perhaps they don't always apply them correctly. There's also a new, near universal experience of the kind of the flip side of that, of the fear of man, of wondering and being controlled at times by what others think of us. We might use different words at times. We might call it people-pleasing or a more psychological term of codependency. But it ends up being what the Bible calls the fear of man, being consumed with what others think of us and adapting our actions, our behaviors to what they think of us or what we want them to think of us anyways. So kids in school wonder what their classmates think of them and adjust their behavior out of a desire to, to please their classmates. Adults do this as well with coworkers or even people at church or perhaps even spouses or friends. And we wonder, do I, do I meet their approval? What do they think of me? Are they, are they pleased with me? And that ends up being a controlling dynamic. It's no wonder then that God's word describes that type of fear of man as a trap or as a snare. In Proverbs 29, 25, it says, the fear of man brings a snare or a trap. And in the contrast, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. But it's that idea of fearing people, being consumed and caught up with what people will think of me, trapping me, snaring me. And we can see as we run through Scripture briefly, a variety of ways in which this takes place. Uh, we see in Deuteronomy 1.17 that it can affect our judgment. Deuteronomy 1.17, it says, You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. And giving instructions for those that would judge over the people of Israel. He's saying, don't, don't show partiality. Don't fear men. So that you're maybe trying to please the rich or the powerful. And so judging in their favor rather than judging rightly. Fear of man can do that. The fear of man can cause us to compromise biblical principles. In Galatians chapter 2, it's a longer section so I don't have it up here. There's a scene where uh, Peter was fellowshipping with believers from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds alike. Uh, as was good and right and appropriate uh, until some... Some other Christians came who didn't think that was right. And he, and he pulled back from these Gentile Christians and acted hypocritically. 
And as he was confronted uh, by Paul about that, he was confronted that he was, he was fearing these other believers instead of living for the fear of God alone. Fear of man can cause us to, to disobey God. We see this with Saul. When he violated what God had commanded him to do, And then he tried to justify. Saul said to Samuel, I I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and I listened to their voice. The same for us. Fearing people, living to please people, being consumed with what people would think about us can, can lead us to disobey God. It can even prevent a person from following Christ altogether. In John chapter 12, We see this indictment. Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him, uh, that is Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, for for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. That is simply another way of describing the fear of man is loving the approval of man, living for the approval of men. What we're going to see in this section that, that we're called as believers, in particular leaders, because that's the context, but it applies to all believers, to live not for the approval of men, but for the approval of God. And to value most God's evaluation of us, and not, not others, and not even our own evaluation of ourselves. It's going to come up in chapter 4. First, though, in chapter 3, it's a bit of a, kind of a summary of some arguments that we've seen And then it leads into these points in chapter 4. So we're going to pick up in chapter 3, verse 18. And you'll see, if you've been with us this whole time in 1 Corinthians, you'll see some phrases and concepts that continue to come up over and over again. It starts to sort of make a conclusion to this section on divisions. uh, But as I was telling Tom earlier on this, it's kind of like the pastor who has like three conclusions, right? Can't quite close the message. Continues to be another conclusion. And that's kind of the way this is. It starts to close this section, but then in chapter 4 continues with some more instruction on division. All right, chapter 3, verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me... It is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the Lord who exam- but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. We'll see this in three parts here, uh, each one built around a specific imperative or command uh, in these verses. And the first is what we see in verse 18, do not deceive yourselves. 
Do not deceive yourselves. What type of self-deception, though, uh, is this talking about? Uh, Because Scripture, in many places, warns us about self-deception, about the capacity that we have to deceive even our own selves. In 1 John, for example, it says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The the warning there about deceiving ourselves is claiming to be sinless, to be without sin. He says, no, you're deceiving yourself, because all of us have sin that we struggle with. In 1 Corinthians 15, so many chapters later from where we're at, it says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And it's just a simple principle of the people that we're around can, can influence. So don't, don't be deceived about that. Well, what is he talking about here, though? I don't think it's these same types of self-deception. It's the deception that it runs in the context, right? This isn't just dropped in there out of nowhere. We have to remember what the context is. And it says he reminds them. He says, let no one deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. This is what he's brought up over and over again since the beginning there in chapter 1. The need to reject the so-called wisdom of man and embrace the wisdom of God, even if the world sees that as foolish. Even if the world looks at the things that believers are holding to and says, that is foolish, well, that's what we must embrace if we were to be, to be faithful. And faithful specifically in this task of building local churches. Remember, that's the context from right before this. He's been talking about how to build churches that are resilient and last and in the day of judgment will, will be found to have been faithful. And we do it by building on things that are, that are lasting. Well, now he's coming back to that again. He says, don't, don't deceive yourself. In other words, if you, if you think you can, can build using methods that are or worldly, that are not lasting, that will show itself over time. Do not deceive yourself on that, to think that you can adopt the world's values and infuse them in the church and not be harmed. D.A. Carson, he describes this as the folly of building a church on personality or speaking skills or positive thinking or smooth management or emotional experiences and not the repeated, clear proclamation of the gospel. It says when you do that, it may lead to apparently growing numbers, but, but not to growing disciples, not, not to solid disciples in a solid church. Uh, I was thinking about that even this morning. Um, as Yeah, so I got a call from Brad about 6.30 this morning that he wasn't going to be able to make it and starting to brainstorm ways to, to meet that need. At that time, we weren't sure if Tom was going to be able to do it and who else was going to be able to step in. So there was a chance that we were going to have a very pared down worship team up here today. Um, well, as it turns out, you know, Tom stepped in, others were able to help, and, and it went great. If I didn't say anything, you probably wouldn't have noticed. But imagine if it was kind of rough this morning, and if we almost had to sing a cappella or something like that. Well, if our church was building on, like, the, the show, like an aspect of a show, of, like, high excellence in music and, and, and something where, where that's, that's what we're really pushing and building our identity on. And, and so people are coming for that. They're, they're not coming for Christ. They're not coming for the gospel. They're not coming to hear the word. And they're not even coming to worship, but they're coming more to experience this show. Well, then, if that can't happen, what is that going to do to a church? 
On the other hand, if we come to worship, we come to hear the word, we come to pray, we come to fellowship, and we strive for musical excellence, which our worship team does, and they do such a good job. They strive for excellence. And yet if that doesn't happen for some reason, they're off a little bit one Sunday, or somebody's sick, well, then it's okay. Because we're not coming for this show, for a consumer thing. We're coming to worship Christ. We're coming to hear the word. Those things are resilient. Now, the world might call that foolish. It might say, no, you need to, you need to impress people. You, you, you need to be professional. You need to, you need to match the musical quality that they're going to hear on the radio or whatever that people are used to or the production values that they're used to seeing on TV. Um, well, that might, might sound good from a worldly perspective, but, but, but God's Word says, no, that's not how you build a church. It's not on appearance. It's not on, it's on those things. It's, it's on the solid Word of God. Well, we embrace the foolishness of God in this passage when we just stick to core principles, and they're principles that were affirmed uh, in the Reformation 500 years ago. So 503 years ago, yesterday was a key moment in the Reformation where Martin Luther, as you may have heard the story, nailed 95 theses, 95 kind of points of protest, if you will, uh, against the Roman Catholic Church to emphasize ways in which he wanted to come back to Scripture. And in this movement that began before him and certainly went after him as well, there are five things emphasized over and over again. And as we build on those five biblical principles, that's where we build a solid church, that we're saved by grace alone, through, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to God's word alone, and for the glory of God alone. And as we, as we come back to these biblically embedded principles again and again, so we can build a solid and lasting church, even if it seems foolish to a watching world. Just this week, I learned about one more aspect of the Reformation there, of building on the word that I hadn't heard before, and it had to do with the way the Reformation worked its way into Iceland. And so in the 1530s, German fishermen were making their way into Iceland, and there were other Icelanders there as well. German fishermen coming along uh, built, built churches in Iceland that were founded on these same Reformation principles. And through that, the Reformation began to spread through Iceland so that about 10 years later, the very first book printed in the Icelandic language was printed, and it was the New Testament. Um, in fact, they put the Icelandic language into writing for the purpose of being able to put the New Testament in their language Within about 40 years, they were able to print the whole Bible in the Icelandic language. And at that point, there were churches spread throughout Iceland, and each of them was responsible to raise the money within their congregation to purchase one of these Bibles. And it came at the cost of about three cows. And so I was trying to think, what's the, what's the monetary value of three cows? Um, well, if you were to buy one today that you wanted to you know, process and, and, and eat, each cow would be about $2,000. So that's the monetary value of $6,000 for a local church to raise to get the word of God in, into their hands so that as they gather as a church, they can read it. And it shows the preciousness with which they held the word of God. And it's something that is solid that a church can build on. 
reminds us of these principles we've seen over and over again in 1 Corinthians. And, and then there's some new language that comes up in verse 21. So, so then, let no one boast in men. And that's our, next, that's our next point, if you're following along in the handout. Do not boast in men. And this is not a new emphasis in 1 Corinthians. It's something, again, that is a drum that has been beat over and over again. But, but the reason given here is a little bit different. It says, all things belong to you. It says, do not boast in men. Building on what has just been said, I mean, because that would be foolish. That, that would be man's wisdom, building on men. So, so the point he's just made leads to this. But then also the point that's just to come. Let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Well, what does that, what does that mean? All things belong to you. Well, he, he starts off by mentioning these names that they've been trying to build around and kind of build their theological camps around and divide over. He says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, saying they belong to you. Well, remember, they were starting, this is where Paul started back in chapter one, by saying, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, as if they belong to these men as some type of disciple-master relationship. And he's been chipping away at that for three chapters. And now he says, no, on the contrary, those men belong to you. You don't belong to them. They belong to you. And when you think about what the word says about the way the body functions, that, that makes sense. Uh, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, okay, this up here, yeah, Talking about the distribution and giving of spiritual gifts. It says, and he, that is God, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Saying God gave these people to the church for this purpose of building up the church. So they belong to the church. Paul, speaking of himself, says, I belong to you, Apollo Cephas, because God has given us and gifted us these things, not to rally a crowd around ourselves, but to, but to build up the church. So for that reason, he can say here, these men, they, they belong to you. Now, a few verses later, he's going to describe that that doesn't mean that he's captive to them and has to please them at all times. No, his accountability is to God. That'll come up in just a moment. But as part of the church, they belong to them. But then he lists five more things. And I want you to put your eyes on those five things that he lists after this. After Paul and Apollos and Cephas. He's going to say these things belong to you as well. The world, life, death, things present, things to come. All things belong to you. Some have described these as the five tyrannies of the human life. Five tyrannies of the human life. Things that enslave us. Things that hold us in bondage. The, the world is described as this system of belief in opposition to God, this thing that wants to squeeze us into its mold, according to Romans chapter, chapter 12, this thing that we need to be careful not to love. This present life can hold us in its power as we live as if life is all that matters, as the present is all that matters. Death can always loom over the horizon. It's described as casting a shadow backwards over all of our life if we let it, if we live in fear of death. The present is full of uncertainty. The future is even more uncertain. These things can tyrannize us. And yet he's saying that if you belong to Christ, all these things are yours. What does that mean? It means they're flipped on their head and we no longer need to fear them because they're held in the hands of a sovereign God. 
So this world is, is his world. And yes, it's in rebellion against him, but it's also his world. And his plan will unfold in this world. Life can be lived now for, for his glory, but held loosely. Death is a, an enemy, but it's a defeated enemy. We no longer have to let it cast a shadow over our lives. This present and the future is secure. What a, what a great promise to remember if, if you are really fearing election day coming up. And the results that you may or may not see on election night or like two months later, right? Who, who, who knows how long it's going to take to kind of know uh, the outcome. But, but if you're really consumed with fear of this, this is a great passage to, to meditate on, especially because the language, it, it doesn't seem cliche. It kind of takes some thought. What does this mean that these things belong to us? Well, it means that the future, as well as the present, belongs to God. And, and we're his. And so we don't need to fear what may happen in the future. It's his. Well, what does this have to do, though, with the argument that he's been making all along and the argument that he comes back to in chapter 4? It means that if we limit Christian experience down to which particular tribe we're in and which person we follow in a way that just divides up the body, not in a way that clings to truth, then we're, we're so narrowing and truncating our spiritual life instead of realizing, no, this, this world is God's. And people he places in it to serve the body, they're, they're his as well, and, and I can learn from them, but I ultimately live for God and not for these people. And so that's what brings us then to this emphasis in chapter 4, and it's our third point, that we are to regard believers, whether they are, we're talking about ourselves, or whether we're talking about people that are leading in some capacity, that they're simply stewards. And so they and you are accountable to God. Uh, look at chapter 4, verse 1. This is our, our third in, imperative or command. It says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Again, this immediate context is talking about leaders, but it certainly applies to, to all of us. That we should see ourselves as servants and stewards. And verse 2 clarifies that. It says, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. You're, you're perhaps familiar with this, but this word steward refers to somebody who manages the possessions of another. So a steward might manage a farm that belongs to somebody else or finances that belong to somebody else. They don't own it. They manage it on behalf of somebody else. And so because of that, the most important thing is for them to be faithful to the one that they are managing uh, on that one's behalf. It's most important that we be found trustworthy. So he's saying as believers, that is most important for us as well, who are found trustworthy or faithful, not to the expectations of others, but to God. And so it's the same language that Paul would use, a different language, but same concept in Galatians 1.10, where he says, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Because I can't, I can't live to please men. It doesn't mean I disregard what people think. That's, not, that's unloving. But I don't, I don't live to please men. I must live to, to please God. I must live as a, a bondservant of Christ. And that's this language of stewardship here. And so he says, what others think of me is, is of little importance. Look at verse 3. This is such a great phrase 
to embed in your mind, especially if you find yourself struggling with this, with wondering what others think about you, consumed with what others think. Verse three says, but to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. It's a very small thing. Social media will convince you that it's a very big thing, <laughs> right? How many likes you have on social media? How many people respond to posts? If that's your thing, that's the kind of the lie of social media is that your validation comes from how many people respond and, and seem to approve of, of what you're posting. But anybody who's caught up in the fear of man or even if they call it people-pleasing or whatever they might be, they're basically affirming the opposite of this. They're saying, no, it's a, it's a big thing to me that I might be examined by you and so I want to please you. Paul says, no, no, it's a small thing. It's a small thing. He says, in fact, I did not even examine myself. For I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Did you get that? He's saying, it's not most important what you think of me, because it's a very small thing for me to be examined by you. And, and it's not even really important what I think of myself. He says, although my conscience is clear, he says, I know I'm not by that acquitted. And why? Because our conscience can be wrong, Right? We might think that we're innocent, but we're not. Our, our conscience can be misinformed. It can be deadened. It can be hardened. And so he says, it's not even most important what I think about myself. No, no, he's going to get to it. It's, it's what God thinks of me. It's what God thinks of me. It, it, to dig into that a little bit. Well, it's important, of course, to keep a, a clean conscience. When, when we're convicted by something, to confess it and turn from it, it's a wonderful thing, something we should be pursuing, and yet it can be misled. Uh, at our men's training time on Tuesday mornings, Tom did a wonderful job this week talking about this, this very topic of a, of a conscience. And he ran through quickly some different passages to describe ways in which our conscience can be misformed or misinformed, and, and which leads to why Paul would say, I can't even trust my own conscience completely. And if I'm acquitted, well, that's, that's not most important because my conscience can be wrong. Our conscience, we, we learn in Titus 1.15, can be defiled. It says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Our conscience can be, can be defiled by the effect of sin. And so we may conclude that we're innocent, but we're not. It's God's evaluation that is most important there. And so, so we can't even trust merely our conscience uh, on itself. Our, our conscience can be calloused, Ephesians 4.19. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. It says your, your conscience can become hardened, can become calloused, and so that what ought to convict you no longer does. I was just talking about this with, with my kids the other day, and I was having them feel on their hands where they can feel calluses. And my little girls don't have many calluses right now, right? But, 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 but I showed them on, uh, on my hands, and, and, and I'm sure many of you that, that work with your hands, it even be much more so, but we can feel calluses there where that skin has built up and your feelings are not as sensitive anymore. And it says that's the language that is used of what we can do. We can become callous so that things that ought to convict us, in this case, it's sexual sin that's described, no longer does. Because we've engaged in it over and over and over again, and so what ought to convict us no longer does. That's the, another way in which our conscience can be an unreliable guide. 
Our conscience can be seared. It's the language that's used in 1 Timothy 4.2. By means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. Like defiled and callous is describing ways in which our conscience can, cannot operate correctly. Leviticus 4 describes unintentional sins. Sins that we don't, we don't realize are wrong, but yet are still sin. And that would be an example of, a, of an untrained conscience. Our conscience not being formed and trained by scripture. You can also imagine Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 talking about an overly sensitive conscience. Where somebody's convinced that something's wrong, but it's really, it's really not. They need to be formed from scripture that, that there's freedom in a particular area. All those describe ways in which our conscience can go awry. And not function correctly. So look back again at 1 Corinthians 4. And in verse 3, he says, It's a small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. Why does he say that? Because he realizes that his conscience isn't going to operate perfectly. Elsewhere, he talks about the importance of maintaining a clear conscience. If we are convicted that something's sin, we should confess that we should turn from it. But it's an unreliable guide. God's word is a reliable guide. God's evaluation will be a reliable evaluation. So he says, I, I can't live for what others think of me. I can't live even for what I think of myself. What's most important is what God thinks. So verse 5, therefore do not go on passing judgment. So the end of verse 4, he who examines me is the Lord. Verse 5, therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. We're his stewards. We're his servants. So what's most important is what he thinks and how he views our actions and attitudes and he will judge with perfection, even the very motives of our hearts. And that's what's most important. Use a little bit different analogy. Think about being at home watching the Olympics. Right? We would have had the Olympics this summer. They're pushed ahead to next summer. But imagine if you're like me, sitting on the couch, eating some nice, crunchy, noisy chips, and you're watching Olympic diving, and you have very little experience with Olympic diving. Right? And, and I certainly do anyways. So I'm watching this. I'm thinking, oh, it's a, it's a pretty good dive. Bad score, right? Uh, somebody else, I think, ah, oh, that, that seems just like the one before it. Oh, and they get a really good score. I have no idea. I realize I have no idea what I'm doing, right, in evaluating this. Those divers would be foolish to, to dive to please Dan Reinhold in Idaho, right? That'd be foolish, right? Because one, I have no idea what I'm doing. And, and two, it doesn't matter what I think. They, in that context, they're, they're diving to, to please the judge, that's evaluating their dive. And that judge is equipped to judge correctly. At least they ought to be, right? And that's the one that, that ultimately matters. In the same way, friends, we, our accountability is to the Lord. We cannot live to please uh, others. We cannot live out of the, the fear of what others may or may not think of us. It doesn't mean we disregard others. It doesn't mean we live callously and we don't care. That's not the point. But, but we live to, to please God. We live to please him alone. And he's the one who, who knows even the motives of our hearts. The, the language of verse 5 is both encouraging and terrifying. Look again there. 
says, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. On the one hand, that's freeing because God understands your motives when others might misunderstand, right? And that's encouraging. But also, God understands your motives, right? And that can be scary because we recognize if we're honest with ourselves that we may do right things but from wrong motives and that might be hidden from others but God sees even that. And it's a reminder that sin is pervasive and it's deep and it works into all these areas and it's a reminder for us that our only hope is the gospel. It's not, I just gotta live good enough so that God will accept me if I just am good enough. No, because that sin runs so deep you could never live good enough for that. That's why what's been emphasized over and over again in 1 Corinthians is the the foolishness of the gospel that Paul says he needs to emphasize over and over again that Christ was crucified for us. That Christ lived a perfect life of obedience from his motives all the way through his actions. He lived that perfect life of obedience in your place. And then he died in your place. So that the one who sees the sinfulness of their actions and trusts in the substitute of Christ is forgiven and embraced and accepted by the Father and then freed to live for the Father's pleasure. Friends, that's the the heart of the gospel. And in a moment here, we're going to take communion and the very act of communion is designed to to picture this trust. So I'm gonna pray and then we'll pivot to communion here.